after I let go of the problem, you know, this sort of catalytic moment where I recognized that it wasn't a problem, then actually what happened was an unfolding, allowing, like this great relief. And I loved what you said about being held, of like this, what felt like by letting go of the problem, then I could open into this sense of being held by the universe that deepened into this just fundamental, it's like a fundamental okayness, like you are held, you're okay, no matter what happens, we're all okay. This is a conversation with friend and colleague Holly Erin Copeland. Our paths first crossed as subtle energy meditation teachers and it became very apparent that our background our current practice and our world view intersected in really interesting ways. Our motivation to be part of and to help nature. Serious illness as a catalyst for deep transformation. And an unfolding experience of living through deep embodiment that opens up emergent ways of participating in life even in spite of the ever-mounting crises we face as a species and as a planet. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation between us. We've known each other for, I don't know, I think it might be going up for two years now, something like that, a year and a half. And, mm-hmm. and of course, we met because we're both certified subtle energy meditation teachers and we met on in that training. Um, yeah, and I've just noticed as I've got to know you that there's quite a few interesting intersections between your background and your process now and your practice now and 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 my own and so it seemed like a kind of interesting way to to learn more about you and to share that with with yeah. others that are listening oh thank you Dan I'm delighted to be here and to have this conversation with you. And I too have noticed that intersection and have, you know, want to get to know you and Joanna both more um, because I sense we share so many, so many common, common themes in, in our path and our lives. So yeah, excited to, to have a conversation with you and explore some of that with you and the listeners. Great. Well, maybe the, the first place to start would be your environmental background. You spent, I think, more than twenty years as a as a conservation scientist. Uh, were you a, a biologist? With that, yeah, an ecologist. You know, my uh, my formal trainings actually, my degrees are in geography. Um, and but as I wow, throughout my career, I really, you know, conservation science was my was my discipline um, and ecology in general. And the way I was sort of a self-taught ecologist that grew out of the um, geography training uh, with all my years at uh, the Nature Conservancy. So yeah, so I was um, a conservation scientist for the Nature Conservancy for 19 years when I left. And then I left them to join... um, the Wyoming Migration Initiative at University of Wyoming, where I worked for two years before I left there. And before my job at the Conservancy, I was working for the Forest Service um, as a GIS specialist, um, conservation, you know, mapping specialist. So that whole span, if you, you know, add it all up was something like, I don't know, 26 years, 27 years, something like that. Um, And it, um, you know, all of that was based on my love of the earth and the environment and my deep desire to do something to help. You know, it came out of just a teenage, a childhood, you know, lots of connection to the environment and earth, lots of camping when I was a kid. 
I was actually conceived in a tent <laughs> in, the, in the mountains, which I just love that my parents told me that. Um, and so I feel like I, you know, right from the moment of conception, I was really deeply connected to the earth. And um, I thought there was a brief time when I was a teen, when I was at University of California, Davis, that I thought that I was going to be an international relations major because I love the travel and the world and all of that. But, um, you know, I, I stumbled onto a geography class uh, that I had to take for my major and just fell in love with the whole science of geography and mapping and place. And it felt like the perfect play, intersection to bring all of these things that I loved together uh, into one discipline. And at the time, um, GIS or geographic information systems, digital mapping was in its infancy uh, and it became the glue of the focus of my career of how do we how do we use maps to help people understand the landscape uh, so that we can better conserve and protect it. And so ultimately, you know, the work that I did was very technical modeling type of work to try and identify where are the most important places to protect and save, how much do we need to save, how can we you know, a lot of mapping of migration corridors, so the work that I was doing right before I left. I uh, was a lead author um, on a Western um, migration mapping effort to map mule deer, moose, and elk <laughs> migration routes throughout the Western United States, all sort of digital, you know, put collars on mule deer and, um, and see where they go. And so that we can conserve those routes. So we can do things like build highway overpasses so the deer aren't getting slaughtered on the roads. And so we can, you know, avoid putting houses in rural in subdivisions right in the middle of an ancient mule deer migration. That kind of thing um, was what I was working on when I gave all of that up and upended my career to do this, to be a meditation teacher and coach and sound healer. <laughs> it is quite a quite a change isn't it yes but I think there's I mean, I'd be interested to know what you know what you think the the ongoing thread from that from such different perspectives but you know I very much see this work as being about nature so mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know what how you feel about that yeah I mean they're one of the so all of that work for me, it was like, so you have to, have to sort of understand, well, what happened that, why would I upend that career to be here, right? Because I was like in what we would call a dream job, you know, working with really cool people doing really cool work, right? Why would I give all of that up? And the reason was because I came to this point where the sadness and the despair that I felt for the planet was like, there was never going to be enough time, money, or resources to quote unquote, save the planet. And it had this sort of murky despair had sort of settled on my heart. Just like, God damn it. It's just all, you know, I'm always going to be chasing my tail. You know, the world is always going to feel that way. And there was an existential crisis that was happening in my heart for that despair. And you know, all, first I went on a journey to like save my own heart, if you will. Like I just felt sad and was waking up with the sadness and that feeling of, is this it? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And in that journey to, to mm, find out, you know, and cleanse my own heart and deal with my own sadness about it. And when I came out of that and I came into this place, you know, through the meditation, through the practices, through all the things we do to this place of transmuting or alchemizing that sadness into deep love. Then all I really wanted to do was help other people turn their sadness into love because I ultimately recognized that saving the planet wasn't for me about saving the earth. It was about saving the people. And if I could save the people, then those people would do the right thing. And so here I am working with people now to help people uh, recognize the love that they are so they will 
save the planet. I think it's very important work. And in a way that's that's been my my migration, if you want to call it that as well, in terms of my work within permaculture. So I've come mm -hmm. at it from a non scientific point of view, but from a kind of practitioner, designer perspective. So and, and actually quite interestingly, I guess in a way, your conservation work is about keeping people out of places that need to be wild and permaculture is about creating ecosystems of permanent human inclusion so it's how, how do mm. humans integrate in a fully embedded way but i just found that when i when i discovered permaculture like 15 years ago um it was really exciting because it was a it it was a way of acting to engage in saving the planet in air quotes and and also to engage in something that had a kind of very clear meaning i've done you know i've had lots of different uh, jobs and careers uh, a lot of them around communications um like i'm a film and writing graduate um and this was a way of kind of morphing that into something that was tangibly helpful so i got very into the doing of it you know it was all about how do we act how do we do and think design make create in that. harmony in connection with the planet. yeah mm. or that's that's the the plan that's that's mm -hmm. the intention mm -hmm. but actually i did about 10 years or so of being very action oriented you know we set up um permaculture businesses we moved to spain and started farming olives and almonds there and and i was constantly just doing iterating creating but i had you know similar existential crises building and building and had ha, had had throughout my adult life bouts of depression and you know I had a problem with alcohol dependency and just wasn't happy there was something wrong and and I felt very deeply also that pointlessness quite often that this is much too big the you know the engulfment of the 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 size of the crisis yeah. crises um and the kind of inadequacy of meeting that crisis through action alone totally. and i realized that i was just completely stuck in 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 thought and activity and there was no recognition of the kind of stillness of being of being beingness right. and uh and that led to, yeah, basically the kind of dysfunction of that and realizing that it was just, just you know, living what seemed nice on, on Instagram, but <laughs> but suffering the same kind of, you know, despair that everyone else is suffering in a nine to five job, you know, in the middle of a city. And, and it was just kind of insane. And my, you know, I, my body said no and that led me on this path to kind of really radically shift the the context of you know my experience of living so yeah yeah i so relate to what you're saying and that you know i just wasn't happy and this the magnitude of the problem like the magnitude of you know when you become you know the more ecologically aware you become the more you you set, you know, this magnitude of the problem, it feels just impossible, like truly impossible. And yeah, like I was, I was just not happy. And I would go down the check boxes and I'd be like, okay, I have sort of a dream job. I'm quote unquote doing my part. I've got some kid, beautiful kids and a husband. I live in this nice little town in Wyoming and like I'm checking all the boxes and I'm just not happy. 
and you know, and then is, I want to hear about your, your health, but then, and then a health crisis hit at that same time, which I think was the thing that tipped me over the edge into like, I had to do something different. I'm not sure I would have forced the issue if it hadn't been for the health crisis. So, so tell me a bit about that. Um, yeah. So I woke up one morning, um, in early of 2018 and I had this bags under my eyes, like this just looked like I'd, you know, had a serious hangover or something, but it was really noticeable and obvious. And I was like, that's really weird. Why didn't nothing on ordinary happened last night? And, um, and that kind of facial edema, that sort of swelling in my face continued and it got worse. It kept, you know, over months basically. Um, and I started to look at, you know, the obvious things. Is there like a weird product that I use? Did I get new laundry soap? Did I, you know, all these things. Um, and one thing I noticed about it was that when I would leave my house, it would get better and because I did a lot of traveling at the time. And when I came home, it got worse. Mm-hmm. So I'd identify that something in my house was the problem, but I didn't know what it was. And doctors weren't helpful. Not conventional doctors weren't helpful. And Ultimately, I talked to a doctor in California, an old family friend, and he did a about an hour long interview over the phone. And he said, it, it really sounds like mold, actually. And we'd had some we'd had some um, flooding in our house from some heavy rains and thought that maybe there was mold under the in the walls. And we had contractors come in and tear things up. And there actually wasn't any mold <laughs> under our flooring. Uh, and ultimately, a eight, nine months later, so all this time, I'm like, my symptoms are getting worse. I'm feeling terrible, and I don't know why. And nine months later, I discovered mold in my bed. And I was sleeping on a bed that had some foam, and then underneath, it was an air mattress. Underneath that foam was a plastic lining, and then the air mattress. And between the foam and that plastic lining, years of body heat condensed on that foam and created a layer of mold and it was all sewn in. So I couldn't see any of this, but we ultimately was like the last thing we'd replaced because we were driving myself, driving myself crazy this whole time. Like what is wrong? What is in my house making me sick? And it was, I was literally sleeping on top of it inches away from my head. (laughs) Um, and then, then I thought I was home free because I thought, oh, I'll just, we got the new bed and I thought I'm fine. But then my body started reacting to any mold in the environment. And the first thing that happened was three weeks later, I ate some Thai peanut sauce. And peanuts are, for those who don't know, one of the moldiest foods in all of foods we eat. It's number one. So I eat some Thai peanut sauce and 10 minutes later, my whole face starts swelling up. Um, and... You know, and I'd known enough to know at the time that peanuts were moldy. And so I knew immediately, oh my God, now my body, the mold's out of the environment. Now my body's starting to go hyper-reactive to any mold. And so then began another year-long process to detoxify my body from mold. Um, and so it was a long journey and I'm still very careful. I still don't eat corn's another very moldy food. I don't eat corn and peanuts and I just have to be careful, but Um, yeah, it, it was awful. And my symptoms, you know, they got worse over time. So yeah, anyway, um, started to kind of move down my body, rashes, swelling, that kind of stuff. Um, it was very, very strange. And, uh, and, you know, there's nothing like being, you know, nothing more humbling than, uh, something on your face that you kind of can't get rid of that, you know, because that's your, you know, what you show to the world. So, you know, it really felt very um, demasking or just like I couldn't turn away from it. <laughs> Literally, it was in my face. <laughs> Universe is funny that way, isn't it? <laughs> what it does to us. Not so subtle ways of yeah. making us shift. And And today I'm like, thankful of the mold because the mold forced me on this journey and I'm happier than I've ever been. And, you know, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but oh my God, at the time 
I can't, you know, I would have thought I was crazy saying those words. How about you? I, I'm really curious to hear your, your health journey. Yeah, well, I, um, I basically just had, a. we'd had a kind of very intense period of, like I say, you know, probably a, a decade of really intense activity, start, you know, setting up farms and a lot of physical work, but also a lot of kind of mental stress. There was, you know, there was excitement there because it was creative, but there was also, for example, the last um, uh, couple of years in Spain, we we were living on a very low income, so that was quite stressful and just kind of how to make ends meet and 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 just realizing that we'd been chasing a, we'd kind of got ourselves stuck in a trap, even though. We'd, we'd moved to Spain because we really wanted to deepen our direct contact with nature. So we lived in a yurt with a we uh, with an earthen floor that we pounded ourselves, and you know, wow. two kids. You know, Leo was six six months old, I think, when we moved. Um, no running water, compost toilets. You know, super basic in the middle of four hundred olive and almond trees. So. Wow. Was, real this the real back to nature yeah <laughs> yeah i don't I, I am one for doing things in you know extreme forcing myself into a situation where you know you have no option so it was it was very much that and uh which was amazing and again i'm super grateful for that experience um it was amazing but it was it was hard as well um and because of Brexit and because of actually kind of rising anxiety around the rate of climate change in the Mediterranean you know it's so obvious there because the agriculture mm. is so it's a, it's a very brittle environment so you get these you know as you know being Californian long dry seasons and then big rainy seasons and you could just see the land washing away into the river every time it rained and kind of terrifying. So we decided to move back to to Finland, which is where Johanna's from, and bought uh, six acres and a little wooden cottage and it was kind of literally every last, you know, euro we had we, we to, to pay for the move and to buy this place. Um, and then we were faced with starting from scratch again, you know, setting up gardens, building infrastructure, getting animals, you know, and all that, you know, just starting making friends, settling kids into school, you know, all the things you have to do when you, when you move countries, um, learn a new language for me. And, and I just couldn't basically did, did about six months to a year of that and my body just said uh no we're not doing this anymore and I just collapsed basically into really extreme fatigue um to the point where I couldn't I, I could hardly get out of bed and you know like holding a, a cup of coffee you know my hands would shake I had a constant internal tremor which you couldn't see but I could feel constantly you know, walking out to the post box or whatever, I'd be kind of dripping in sweat by the time I came. But I was just, my body just shut down totally in a not-so-subtle way that the universe likes to likes to offer us as a lesson. And And I went to the doctors and had millions of tests and there was nothing wrong with me, you know, everything more or less normal. Yeah, I couldn't hold my body upright for more than about five minutes and it was terrifying you know I thought mm -hmm. oh, I'm dying of something like it mm -hmm. felt like dying but I knew that it was something to do with my the, the kind of loss of connection to my body and to something deeper that I'd kind of been ignoring because I was so in this thinking doing mode. And, mm -hmm. um, so I just, 
I just kind of switched immediately to looking at non-conventional uh, options. I mean, I'd been a meditator for, you know, I, I was taught transcendental meditation when I was five. So I've had a long on-off relationship with with meditative practice, but it's always been... Um, well, I moved very quickly into a, a kind of concentrative, single-pointed, progressive path-style meditation for many years. And it never really suited me and always felt like hard work and never, you know, it was calming and that was it. You know, there was nothing transformative about it for me at least. And um, so, you know, in this process, I, I discovered the concept of embodiment for a start and started with um i guess from the trauma end more so i was looking at kind of peter levine's work and somatic experiencing i did um quite a lot of um have you come across tre trauma release exercise work Mm-mm. that's um i'd recommend that actually it's um basically you you stress your body in a way that uh stimulates a mammalian shaking stress response so um as you know deer or any mammal in the wild when it's been under stress it will shake uncontrollably and several deep sighs and disperse the the stress out of its you know process the stress from its body so this is a way of inducing that i basically got into every form of embodiment practice i could lay my hands on tried everything signed up to everything um and immediately saw changes in my health the tremor started to subside and my energy came back I also did uh, I moved to a kind of paleo style diet um and that helped and yeah and in that process came came across um, subtle energy meditation so you know like a, a much more embodied approach to meditation um, and that set me on a very different path over the last you know however many years it's been now so it's it's been truly transformative in that sense that I still have issues with fatigue and um, but nothing like that you know I'll have a a kind of the occasional crash but I've got a whole different approach to myself in that process now as well, you know, which I guess is based in love and compassion. Yeah. 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 So what what was your, what was your first move from, from the kind of crisis of health and existential issues to, you know, what, what was the first changes that you made? The first changes that I made were um, that I recognized that I needed to get out of my own mind. Um, and I had never, I had tried meditation in my teenage years. I was, I was a, I would describe myself as I sort of as a lifelong spiritual person, you know, reading lots of spiritual books, but I had never, and I dabbled in meditation, but I'd never actually took up the practice. You know, I had some failed attempts trying it and then just, it felt pointless kind of. And um, I nev- certainly never had a teacher. So my first, I actually went to a Shambhala retreat in Colorado for the weekend, uh, which was my first you know, experience meditating for an entire weekend, you know, eight hours a day. And it, it pretty much you know, spit me up and chewed me out, chewed me up and spit me out. I was like, Oh, that's hard, <laughs> you know? And there was a guy there that was, uh, one of the helper facilitators assistants. And you know, he was there for the whole month <clears throat> meditating eight hours a day. And I remember sitting in this small group, like hearing him, you know, he was so joyful and happy. And I noticed that all the people that were the teachers were I would describe them like they had soft edges. There was like this softness to their presence. And I recognized like, I, I want that, that I want soft edges. And, um, one of the teachers there 
said that she, you know, when we left for the weekend, she said, you know, keep meditating and, you know, I'm happy to talk to you and mentor you, you know, so we had several conversations. And I started uh, from that experience, I started meditating every day, you know, 20, 25 minutes um, in the method I was taught there. And, um, and I started reading about, you know, brainwaves and brainwave science. I read Les Fermi's book, Open Focus Brain. And the scientist in me, like sort of understanding the brainwaves of meditation was really helpful for the scientist in me to just even recognize that, you know, like just these are simple things to me. And now they seem so simple, but like, oh, when you're in a crazy thinking state, that's a beta brainwave state and your brainwaves are kind of cycling higher and, um, you know, and what's happening in the brain and the default mode network and how you kind of spin off into these you know, stories of thoughts. And then, um, and the process of meditation is, you know, building the circuitry, rewiring the circuitry in your brain. So I, at first I just got really fascinated with this idea of I'm rewiring the circuitry in my brain through meditation. Uh, and I was, I was, I got the muse headband and I was you know, tracking my brain waves with it. And that gave my little science brain something to chew on and see, <laughs> And I uh, did some neurofeedback with Cody Raw. Um, and that's when I stumbled on, I was, I was posting my brainwave graphs on the, in the Muse community. And, uh, you know, Stephen Altair, mutual friend and teacher, uh, commented, was commenting and liking them. And Randy Knudsen, another friend, was, you know, commenting on them. And ultimately, that's how I met Stephen and ended up being invited to be in the first cohort of the subtle energy meditation group. Um, and so it really started for me in, in, I guess, a, a deep sense of wanting to get out of my head, like get out of my own head and thoughts and this understanding that this meditation thing was a way out. So it didn't, you know, even though I was spiritual, I didn't actually connect those two into, like I started becoming fascinated with what it, what an enlightenment path would be and what that really means about living in joy, you know, um, as your permanent state of being or, you know, this kind of fundamental well-being and fundamental okayness. I didn't know that's where I was headed. It all unfolded and kind of fell down this rabbit hole of, <laughs> of connecting meditation with the spiritual path and with awakening. And, um, and then, and then from there was when I started to, you know, stumbled on Rupert Spire and Locke Kelly and the direct path and all of that. Um, but that's, I'll pause there and just say, that's kind of how, that's how I got into it. It was really, uh, I'm going to rewire my brain uh, out of this cha chaotic mess of my thinking mind um, yeah. that I was trapped in. Yeah. And did that, so it, it sounds like that was obviously a safe way in for you because that's, you know, from your, as you described, your, your scientific mind needed to, to hang on to something that it could kind of digest. And, and it's interesting that, you hadn't even really made the spiritual connection that kind of snuck up on you in a way. And yeah, I'm interested to, because in a way that's, I'd say that was, I'm not scientific in that way, but I, d I have definitely gone through a process of, of a very different emphasis now with meditation practice. I, I basically refer to it as natural being now. Yeah. That's, you know, natural meditation for me is, how do we learn to just rest as in being first within okay. the body and then recognizing that the boundary that we perceived as the, you know, the boundary of our bodies is actually not a boundary. Um, and so we begin to have much more expanded experience of, of being and of self. I think I, I kind of went through the, the trying phase, a lot of, you know, it sounds like you were quite busy with your meditation in terms of recording graphs, posting graphs, monitoring. You know, there's a lot of yes. doing in that, isn't there? There and was that... a lot of doing in that, <laughs> yes. 
So then how do we get to, you know, it's interesting to, because I think, I feel like we've had a similar kind of letting go slowly of that simplifying, reducing effort, you know, just learning to relax, to rest, to be, to mm -hmm. experience what that is. Um, you know, how, how, how has that process been for you in terms of, it's a very, very big shift, isn't it? From personality wise and. Yeah, I think, you know, I remember, you know, that famous old phrase, trying is the obstacle, you know, and I remember this sort of early on, I would, you know, imagine this, this Stephen was like Yoda, you know, and I'm Luke and I'm trying to raise the ship out of the swamp, you know, and I'm failing miserably. And um, I like what you're, I very much resonate with, with what you're saying about natural being, but there's, and I, that, that is how it feels to me too, that it, at some point it's really, you recognize it's really about this natural beingness of just resting back into life and allowing life to flow through you and all the so-called problems take care of themselves. You just don't see it that way. Nothing's a problem. Like it, in a way it, it was like I went, another way I describe it is like, I went from viewing life as the problem solver, like my life, I wake up in the morning and I have the problems to solve to letting go of all that. There's no problem to solve. There's just beingness and just bringing love to every moment and seeing what wants to unfold and being part of the journey on that, you know, take you're just on the raft being kind of carried along on the river. And you really can't, like, of course, you can't tell someone that. Like, they can hear it a million times, and then they just, they have to evolve to see it for themselves. At some point, something snaps or something shifts, and you get it, you know. And, like, I remember one of my get it moments, uh, stories that I have told before, but I'll say like, and I went through, I'm writing this in my, I'm writing a book right now called Conservation of the Soul. And I'm going through old conversations I had with Stephen because Stephen Altair and I, he was my mentor through this whole process. And we would have these message, Facebook message, big, long conversations. And, and so I would record audios, messages to him. And I'm reviewing them right now for my book. And I was just really, you know, caught in this total existential crisis of what is this all about and despair and sadness. And anyway, um, you know, and, and looking in my dog's eyes and it's like, you can see that the animals get it. Like they totally, they're the, you know, they're the naturalness we all seek. They're the exemplars. And I looked in my dog's eyes and was like, he's got it. What, what is that? I want that, that naturalness. And I walked, I was out on a run and I came back into my house and I was taking my shoes off and there's like dog hair just, you know, all across the floor, which normally is like, there's the next thing to do. You know, there's the next problem to solve. And I just looked at it and I was like, oh, it's not a problem. It's just not a problem. And it was like something clicked in me and it, I just recognized that it wasn't a problem. There was no problem to solve. Yeah, I'll go sweep it up. But my attitude flipped around it. And it really hasn't, that flip hasn't unflipped. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm washing the dishes or cleaning the bathroom floor or whatever, or in traffic, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. There's just no problem to solve. <laughs> and when you finally when that lands like deeply, not as a concept, not as a, a thought, but like for me, when that deeply landed, I could finally just relax into just being with life as it was. And everything just felt okay. It's all okay. I can't really explain it. Just, it's an under, it's like a deep understanding, a somatic felt understanding. Hmm. Um, 
that's what happened to me basically. And now it just continues to unfold and, you know, deepen and yeah. It's beautiful. I'm curious for you, I know you've had some big shifts that have shifted things for you. And I'm curious to hear some of your, how you, how the beingness and the naturalness of being has arisen for you. Yeah. Well, I think there was a point, you know, I, th I think even though I was developing a, a kind of a relationship really for the first time with my, with my body, with my deeper self, with my intuition, I was listening much more closely. It still was very much, I was still trying quite hard because I was seeking desperately you know I wanted to be healthy and I wanted to be happy and um and so it was still kind of work and and of course the the what comes with effort is the notion of failing also trying and failing so there's kind of frustration in that And for me, I think actually that, you know, Stephen and um, Kevin Cheninger have been, you know, very profound teachers for me and very helpful. But I think the, the person that helped just release that efforting for me was John Prendergast. So mm. he's, I'm now very lucky to to be being mentored by him but uh, you know Johanna and I did some online stuff with him and read his books and and I don't know whether it's because it's it's very psychological he's a depth psychologist and he brings you know he, he very much comes from that angle they just that really worked for me I just needed to mm. be allowed and it's not really permission for him from him I guess it was to begin with but to be allowed to be to let go yeah. of the grip to realize that I I am held I don't have to hold myself up and yeah that was kind of shocking and highly emotional you know that the relief of that um yeah it's just massive and yeah. Uh, and from working with him, that that's just uh, really shifted something fundamentally. That it's kind of it was the it was just it was the allowing that I needed to needed to happen. Um, and then I from then on, I, I, the experience for me has been actually mainly downward as a felt experience so i'm um, kind of resting in my pelvis and base of my back there was a lot of I, I, clearly that was what was needed to happen in my process that grounding deep yeah. grounding i think i've been untethered and what was interesting to come back to this idea of you know living in a yurt on the land in direct contact i wasn't at all grounded you know, we went there to connect with nature and we still felt like there was some kind of wall between us and the rest of life. <laughs> because of that conditioning and because of that sense of separation and that feeling of existential atomization, you know, that we're just alone. And as soon as I allowed myself just to let go, then you let it isn't a, I mean, I, I completely hear what you're saying about that there is no problem to solve, but it, for me, it wasn't even about that. It was just about I, I think it's the phrase that you use, that kind of fundamental okayness. 
Mm. It's just your birthright. Is that's what I mean by natural being? It is. Yeah. There's no. It's non-negotiable. It's a genderless. It's ever present, and you can feel it very palpably in your body and in your whole biofield. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and that just uh, has allowed a kind of unfolding of kind of psychological release stuff. I think so. It's you know mm. held conditioning held emotion in the body trauma in the body that has over a period of time loosened and loosened and and that's why i decided to train as a as a transpersonal psychology coach so it was because i think for me that's been so catalytic to to combine embodiment with psychological process work yeah um in a really holistic uh, methodology um so, yeah, yeah it, it, it's kind of been that, really. And obviously, you know, it's a process. And I, I've given up on the notion of um, a path. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's exhausting, isn't it, basically, the whole idea of a path. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> so, and... and so therefore I've given up the idea of attainment of enlightenment as, as a goal in the future and mm-hmm. all of that crap that I was obsessing over for decades in my other previous life as a meditator. Mm-hmm. And that, from, that for me is what's so good about the, you know, this direct approach that it's available. You just it's have available to right just, now. And so actually easily available. I mean, there are, there are levels of availability and levels of stability of experiencing yourself as beingness. Yeah. But there's no big fight necessary. Yeah. That says it all. There's no big fight that's necessary. I so resonate with that. And, um, I've basically landed in the same place of giving up the path of doesn't feel necessary. I mean, and I'll say that I still do practices and I'm still exploring, right? Like I still have a two hour practice of energy work and meditation in the morning, but there's a letting go of, of a, like chasing something. And it's more feels like just exploring walking through the garden kind of seeing what flowers are there and what wants to kind of come into your consciousness it's a very different way of being with the the path if you will um and just to say i yeah so much of what you said resonates and i too i love john prendergast also and his book, The Deep Heart, really touched me and was part of my journey as well. I was one of the ones I listened to on those runs when I was having my existential crisis, and it was so helpful. Um, and what you said that this, so it was like after I let go of the problem, you know, this sort of catalytic moment where I recognized that it wasn't a problem then actually what happened was an unfolding allowing like this great relief. And I loved what you said about being held of like this, what felt like by letting go of the problem, then I could open into this sense of being held by the universe that deepened into this just fundamental, it's like a fundamental okayness. Like you are held, you're okay. No matter what happens, we're all okay. And uh, and this, but the somatic knowing of that and the releasing of that is like a deep work process that has many many layers in my experience, and it's still it's still unfolding. It's still touching deep parts. Yeah, and I think it's multi generational. Mm-hmm. if you know if that's the path that's okay you know because there's so many generations of 
layers of conditioning and hardening and separation that need to gently mm. release. Mm-hmm. I think it's what's interesting, finally kind of bring it back around to nature and to our yeah. kind of shared background or interest and love of connection with nature and and also this notion of passivity versus activity you know for me I I think that existential terror of what's unfolding when you're caught up in the the thought cycle of that and the emotional uh, storm of that it's very hard to act so you're essentially just in you know hyper stimulation of your nervous system and you know not very useful in an emergency exactly i just wanted to articulate really for me that this is not about okay there's no problems to solve i'm fine i'm happy it's been a really liberating process in terms of my ability to act to still to care as deeply but not to be crippled yeah i'm just wondering how you know that's been for you yeah it's such an important uh it's such an important point so it's a beautiful I'd love to and yeah wrap up on this point because it's as you said you know it's not that we come to there's no problem to solve and I'm okay and great so no, nothing to do what I say is it's like there's there's a fundamental okayness and for me that ground of well-being allows me to act it's actually like my cup is so full that it overflows and I want to do more. I want to participate in the world and help, but not from a place of lack, not from a place of everything is falling apart. Uh, And so I'm kind of chasing my tail, but actually I'm full of love and I have infinite resources and love and well-being to bring to the party, to, to support all of the work that needs to be done. So it's... It's beautiful because then now you get to act and love for the love of the world, not acting out of pain. Two totally different places to come from. And that's been my experience. Yeah. Holly Copeland is a certified neuromeditation teacher, a human potential coach, Reiki master and sound healer. She's also a practitioner and teacher of non-dual awareness and subtle energy meditation techniques. You can find out more and work with her via her website, heartmindalchemy.com. I'm Dan McTiernan. I'm a transpersonal psychology coach and an embodied meditation teacher. And together with my wife, Johanna, we run Earthbound, a coaching organization working at the fertile edge between transpersonal psychology, embodiment, and permaculture. To find out more, please visit our website at earthbound.fi.